So welcome back to the Wave Podcast, everyone. My name is Pluria. This is Connor sitting next to me. And today we have brought in Holly J. Mitchell from the 2nd District, and she is the uh, lead of the County Board of Supervisors. So thank you for taking some time out of your day today to sit down and speak with us. I appreciate that. I would not say I'm the lead. I was chair last year. This year, Janice Hahn is chair, but I'm one of five. And I'm excited to be here to have this conversation with you both. Thank you for the invitation. No problem. We have a number of broad topics we'd like to get to, uh, but we'd like to start with uh, Karen Bass's major initiative, which is uh, homelessness and yes. housing in general. Yes. Uh, so overall, uh, what is the board uh, doing? What is their agenda this year uh, to address homelessness? So I appreciate you asking the question because when I'm, you know, uh, in the market or in my front yard, um, you know, I think the general sentiment is the government's not, quote, doing enough. And I think that's a reflection. If you don't see the encampment on your block or on your commute to work and school move, then you assume nothing's happening. And that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, um, the city of L.A. and the county of L.A. passed Measure H and HHH. And I just got some statistics because I think it's really powerful. I wanted people to understand um, you know, since uh, the city and county passed those measures, tens of thousands of people have been housed in both um, affordable housing units where entire apartment complexes have been built, um, beds, either board and care, individual beds. Is it enough? No, we've got a lot more we have to build. Unfortunately, more people are losing their housing daily than we can house daily. It's right. literally, the numbers are like, we house 225, every day every single day and yet 212 lose their housing yeah so our strategy's got to be broad and diverse the strategy has to be keeping people housed which is um a the most humane and really the most cost effective um if we can figure out what's making their housing situation vulnerable if it's affordability whatever the case keep those people housed as we continue to build um, to make space available for the rest of the folks looking for housing. L.A. County is 500,000 housing units short. So while we've built about 25, 30,000 units, that is a drop in the bucket of what we need. And, and like those units are not just for the unhoused. They're for everybody. It's housing that, that you too can afford as young professionals. It's housing that I may want to transition to as I continue to age. You know what I mean? And so we've got to build. We've got to build across the spectrum, shelters, uh, short-term housing, transitional housing, uh, affordable, you know, moderate income. We have to build to keep up with the overall demand so people can afford it. And that we need to build the kinds of housing that meets the unique needs, that does have wraparound services for people who need that. I like that you've characterized it as a supply and demand problem mm -hmm. because broadly the, the housing theory of everything is simply that people are losing their housing because housing is unavailable, it's expensive, it's rare, exactly. uh, and we need to uh, create supplies to mm -hmm. lessen demand. Right. Um, what are some of the roadblocks that are getting in the way of building this housing? Uh, in, in, in your view? Well, I think, you know, they're historic. That, that None of this happened overnight. We didn't wake up one day and L.A. County have 70,000, 80,000 unhoused. There are a variety of um, problems, po policies, yeah. policies that were put in place, uh, you know, sheer economics, affordability, uh, you know, the fact that um, incomes haven't kept pace with inflation. So there are all kinds of reasons. But, you know, some of the reasons, um, you know, deal with um, what we build, 
for whom and where, okay? Mm -hmm. What we build. I hear a lot from um, single family homeowners in my community that don't want the look of their block to change, right? Um, and so, so the they don't want pushback. the community pushback on building more densely, building multifamily housing. In walkable um, neighborhoods. It, precisely, precisely. So again, what we build, for whom? Um, people stop me, you know, Mitchell, what are you going to do about the unhoused? Or what are we all going to do? What are, how are we all willing to make sure that our own blocks may look different? A <laughs> common criticism is that the board. there's uh, too many uh, stakeholders in the decision pipeline uh, when public money is involved with creating new housing blocks. Uh, that it's uh, easier and faster to use private money to do so, especially with the builder's remedy, which is that 1990s clause mm -hmm. that allows homeowners, or sorry, builders to come in and bypass local zoning laws mm -hmm. and- uh, If they default on yeah, the, the promise to, you know, the governor. Them. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, how, how do you feel about that? Is that, that a solution at the statewide level for Los Angeles' housing problems? You know, I, I, don't, I, I don't know that that is the singular solution. I think that we've got to, um, first of all, all of us as individuals decide that we are no longer willing to live in a city, a county, in a civilized society that walks past people who are unhoused. We, as, as residents of this county, have to acknowledge that we are willing to do all that we can to house every resident and that we have to you know, have honest conversations with ourselves about who the unhoused are. I think that there are these broad assumptions. They're all mentally ill, not true. They all are choosing to live on the street, not, not true. true. There are people who are go to work every day who are living in their cars because they simply can't afford it. And so I think the housing strategy has to be as broad and diverse as the needs of the people who need housing. And so private need to step up and build. Um, um, nonprofit organizations need to be empowered with resources to step up and build. Government needs to, to be in the building business, and we have been in recent decades where historically government didn't build. Um, government's job was to get out of the way for private developers, but to also hold private developers accountable. accountable. Um, to making sure that they are building what the community needs. It's not just about a purely for-profit endeavor. Uh, you look around at the construction that has happened, there's lots of unaffordable housing units that sit vacant. Those three towers that they built in my old favorite parking lot when I'd go see the, the Lakers at, uh, you know, downtown, um, those three high-rise, and it's like, who lives there? You know, the average rent on those units is astronomical. And so it's what we build, where we build it, and for who. And it's really, you know, as far as, like, the community input. Because a lot of people, they think about homelessness and they go, well, the, the county's not doing enough, the city's not doing enough. But then when it actually comes down to it, they're the people that are rejecting these proposals in their community to, you know, actually have these go forward. And show up and and our, the, the response is ugly and visceral. Yeah. And my response is the unhoused are our family, friends, and neighbors. I did a tour of a um, new apartment complex on the Crenshaw Corridor that was built using containers. So I was like, you know, I'm visual. I have to see, does it look like a box car? You know, what does it look <laughs> like when you get inside? They were quite small, some single, some one bedrooms. And I was in there thinking, oh my God, I, you know, I couldn't turn around twice in here. I couldn't fit all my, you know, just my junk. I've accumulated 59 years in the planet. 
I had a couple of young staffers with me, and they were like, when are the leases, when are you going to open it up? When are the leases available? <laughs> and it occurred to me that everyone has different housing needs. And so while my Baldwin Hills constituents who complained about that complex being built, oh, you didn't build parking, they're going to park in our neighborhoods, they're too small, who's going to live there? The place filled up instantly. It's on the metro line. And so there is a segment of the population who that kind of housing does work for. So I told my Baldwin Hills residents, because, you know, you all stay in your lovely big houses that you have ascended to. There's another generation of people, young, older, those who want to downsize, who this works for. And so we've got to build differently for different kinds of people. And would you say, you know, working with, you know, the state's agenda, because Gavin Newsom has allocated $12 billion for the next two years to, you know, help house the homelessness uh, population in, uh, throughout the state. Has that helped you, um, you and the, the board with making decisions and, you know, getting things through? Because I know that he withheld over a billion dollars because he said it wasn't doing enough. Mm-hmm. So how is, how is working with the, the state on this problem? Well, I think it, it helps that I've spent a decade of my life there working uh, as a state legislator, as chair of the Senate Budget Committee, have a great working relationship with the governor. And I have to say that, you know, L.A. County wasn't on the naughty list when he uh, threatened holding that money back. He had a convening. I was there in the space. And we talked about what counties are doing. And, and every county and every municipality are, is really responding differently. I'm proud of what L.A. County and L.A. City what we're doing now, what we did by passing those measures, what the voters did by passing those measures, saying we will tax ourselves to create this fund to build and to fund the wraparound services we believe the unhoused folks need. And so we have, for example, a wonderful pilot in my district called Safe Landing. It's very expensive, but it's critical because it's a no barrier entry system. An unhoused person can come up, walk up 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, you can bring your pet. If you're a couple, you can come together. There's a place where you can store your items. When you talk to the unhoused, I think historically the, the model that we've built doesn't meet their needs. Um, not allowing pets, having strict requirements. If you're a couple, you couldn't stay together. If you're a homeless family, once your son reaches the age of 13, he couldn't stay in the family unit. He has to go in the single adult male unit. I'm a mother. I wouldn't send my son over there by himself. So we've had, government has had to respond to the new unhoused population. It's no longer the World War II or Vietnam vets who are the unhoused. We have unhoused families, um, people who are in couples, people who want to bring their pets. And so we've had to build and be creative and respond to the, the new emerging needs of the unhoused. Um, so we do have a place where they feel comfortable coming in off the street. Uh, I like that you characterized the unhoused as us and the, the housing insecure as everyone. This Absolutely. is a community problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's a nice segue into the other thing we want to talk about, which was the criminal justice reforms. Um, just, just for starters, I, I was wondering if you could explain where we're at in the process of closing the men's central jail. Let me take a step back, if you yeah, don't mind. I know that's a little about, bit of a, yeah. It, it's, a, that's, it's big. But let me just take a step back and acknowledge my own history as a legislator um, for 10 years uh, in carrying some of the most progressive, innovative package of legislation that really helped to redefine um, criminal justice reform. I think when we use that term, 
everyone has a different idea of what that means. And from my perspective, we are right-sizing the criminal justice system. The, the pendulum swung too far in one direction uh, where we began to criminalize things like substance use disorder and poverty and the unhoused. Those are not actions that I believe should be criminalized. We also are in a place now where we've you know, legalized marijuana. And so how do we now untie those knots that we've tied for so many years where people are serving time for possession of a substance that's now legal to possess. So we really have to go back through the penal code um, and look at it through a different lens. We also have to acknowledge that it had a disproportionate impact on black and brown people and poor people, quite frankly. And with that new lens and acknowledgement, with the new acknowledgement that um, addiction is a public health issue. You know, during the crack epidemic, it wasn't perceived that way. Um, people were sentenced to excessive sentencing. Um, the, the difference in sentencing between powder and crack cocaine uh, was offensive. I was proud to carry that bill in the state legislature to create parity. If it's the same amount, then why were you sentenced for longer because it was in the form of crack versus powder? And that broke out based on racial and socioeconomic lines, quite frankly. So a part of what we're doing is bringing a new lens to right-sizing the criminal justice system, acknowledging that the laws in the books have disproportionately impacted black and brown and poor people whose communities are over-policed, um, and how we holistically acknowledge how we got here. I'm lack with you on jobs, that. Lack of jobs, lack of housing, all those kinds of things. So Men's Central Jail is a antiquated, falling apart, horrific place for the people who are sentenced there, for the men and women who work there in the sheriff's department. And as you know, a couple of years ago, the board made the decision to close it. The question is how, and how do we do it right and well? Where do we divert people who are already sentenced? How do we create the program that the county did, alternatives to incarceration, to acknowledge the upstream issues that lead people to being locked up? Far too many um, for reasons that don't justify going to jail. The number of people that are in jail pre-trial, just because they don't have the resources to bail out. Almost, like half, the almost half the population. Yeah. The number of people who are serving in men's central jail who are suffering from severe mental illness. Why? Because when we see someone having a mental health crisis on the street, what do we do? We call 911. Who shows up? The police. Where do they take them? To jail. <laughs> As opposed to having other systems in place to deal with the needs of the severely mentally ill. So the board, um, this past Tuesday, I've got a motion coming up, 1st of May, to create beds, to fund and build community-based beds to deal with what we call the P3, P4 population, those suffering severe mental illness who are in county jail, as well as unlocked bed facilities through our Office of Diversion and Reentry, ODR, which are community-based settings that have had amazing success, 90% success rate. The recidivism rate is lower than any other um, you know, carceral system. So what we've got to do is fund these alternatives stand them up in the community so we have a place for people to go and to be 
instead of Men's Central Jail. And that's what you're doing beforehand, correct? So, Because I think uh, a lot of people, especially from the outside looking in, like even my question was like, well, are they just going to close the jail and just let everybody out? Or is like there going to be programs in place? Because that was my biggest concern is that there are all these different areas that need to be addressed. We had, you know, No Justice LA. We had someone come in and talk to them recently. We were talking about this and you know, it's it's a big concern because, you know, especially what you see on the news, they're like, well, they're going to close the jail and everybody's going to be on the streets and we don't know where they're going to go. So I'm glad that, you know, you're you're telling you're speaking to that because people at home need to know like, OK, well, we're not just closing the jail. We're lifting creating alternatives. Up, yeah, we're creating yeah. alternatives that actually work, that we've seen work rather than just like, oh, they're going out on the streets. And we also have to educate the public about who's in jail and why. And so when we talk about when the former sheriff said, like two sheriffs ago, L.A. County Men's Central Jail is the largest mental health facility in the country. That should say something to people. Yes. And those nine-by-nine cells are no place for someone suffering from severe mental illness. It's not even the cells. It's just the, the waiting areas where they put the overflow. All of that. It's no place for someone to either attempt to get healthy, even to be treated humanely. And so, you know, sometimes people really grapple with, well, they committed a crime, so. And so we really have to, I think, do a better job of educating ourselves of who's there. Um, will we always need to have a place for people to serve time for having committed criminal acts? Yes. Yes. Are the vast majority of the people who are currently in men's central jail fit that category? No. No. A lot of people ask, like, oh, what about the victims? But in a lot of these cases, the offender is the victim, uh, and that's who needs to be addressed. So you have these programs like Safe Landing and uh, Community Beds um, that are trying to rectify that. You also wanted to talk, and, and that answers one of your questions. Uh, you wanted to talk about what we're doing for uh, mental health, uh, and, and you also wanted to talk about uh, what we're doing for, uh, I don't know, personal public safety? I don't know how to term this. Yeah, so essentially my whole thing is, you know, with, with public safety, like where where do you draw the line on like where, like because people want to have the right to defend themselves. Um, like the Second Amendment is a big thing for, you know, in the black community and a lot of other communities. Um, so I was just kind of curious like where you fall along the lines of like personal defense because, again, if we're going to take money away from, you know, the sheriff's department, the police departments, and, you know, we're kind of trying these new things – you know, where do we allow people to like, for example, concealed carry is now a big thing. Mm -hmm. Like where, how do you, how do you view that aspect of things? Cause I think uh, again, the public's view of concealed carry is, oh, they should get a gun and they get to carry it and just do whatever. But it's like, no, there's, there's a process. They have to get, you know, evaluated. They have to go in and get interviewed, mental health checks, background checks, firearms training, all kinds of things. So I'm just curious, like, where you are on the spectrum of, Yeah, what, you know, what kinds of uh, gun control initiatives are you uh, for and against here? Right. So as a member of the legislature, you know, we, the, California was very progressive going way back decades to former Senator um, Roberti in terms of California was one of the first states to really, you know, ban, you know, the, the kinds of firearms that I don't believe uh, an average citizen needs in their home to protect themselves. So there were With magazines um, um, that allow you to fire, you know, multiple rounds in seconds. And unsafe know. guns, Saturday night specials? All those kinds of things. And, and, and then this new ghost gun scenario where you can order via Amazon parts mm -hmm. and assemble a gun that has no serial number. And that 3D can't printers be tracked, and, and 3D printers. Of, yeah. 
all of that to me is beyond dangerous. And while I appreciate the perspective of individuals uh, wanting to, for whatever reason, have firearms, if they are willing to go through all of the steps that you talked about, Mm -hmm. um, I have a concern when we have law enforcement who kind of open up the gates for concealed carry and anyone can kind of go in for any reason to be able to walk around in public and, and carry a firearm legally. I have a problem with that. You know, when the Constitution was written, that was before, and we, they talked about a citizen militia. That was before we had an LAPD and a sheriff and a highway patrol. We, as residents of this county and state, pay tax dollars to fund. We have professionals who are trained who take an oath to protect and serve. My hope is that they protect and serve equally and unbiased. And I do have a concern when, you know, my neighbors take it upon themselves with minimal training, whatever the case may be, to think that they are, quote, protecting their property themselves by having a firearm. You know, because, when we look at the statistics yeah. and realize the incidents of, of harm, unintentional caused in homes, either accidental shootings, um, domestic violence, there's a gun in the house, it gets heated, there's a firearm, it gets brandished. Um, those statistics trouble me. And I don't know that there's a way that we can ever compare, you know, how many crimes were averted because a private citizen had a gun as opposed to how many lives were lost because a private citizen had a gun. When you look at these young people protesting in Tennessee right now and those heart-wrenching <laughs> pleas of parents who are saying, I taught in school, we would not be more safe to have allow teachers to, to have weapons. That's not the case. We need to limit access. I think this is an important conversation that we need to continue, continue to have as a country. Um, and, and it's unfortunate that it's un, un, with the painful backdrop of weekly, daily loss of life as a result of gun violence. I, I totally understand that. I just feel like, you know, my, my view on the Second Amendment is I feel like most people focus on the the bads mm -hmm. and then they say, well, that's all gun owners when it's like, no, because there's mil like hundreds of millions of gun owners sure. in this country sure. that, you know, law abiding citizens, you know, carry their firearms mm -hmm. and use them properly. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, mass shootings are terrible. And I think that we really need to address, you know, mental health within our communities. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just more on the the side of like, you know, like black, the history with black people and like where we came from and mm -hmm. like how far it took us to get here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially when you talk about, you know, defunding the police mm -hmm. and, you know, how police are reacting to, you know, people of color and communities. Mm -hmm. I'm just more on the side of like, I, I should be able to defend myself with a firearm with like whatever it may be. So that's why I, I pose that question because, you know, a lot of people, again, they just, they look at the overall argument and they don't know enough about the issue and they just go, oh, we need to ban everything, you know? You know, I think the reality is there is no black and white in public policy. It is all nuanced. As we talked about who's in men's central jail, as we talk about who our unhoused family, friends, and neighbors are, as we talk about gun ownership, um, it's all nuanced. And so I will, I have, and will always vote for bills that limit, um, uh, magazine size, you know, the, the ability to assemble assault rifles. I don't know of a private gun owner uh, in an urban setting that would need an assault rifle that with a magazine that would allow them to load one time and have 100 rounds in a gun. I can't see a scenario where that's necessary. I totally understand that. But then the again, the conservative conservative argument to counter that would be more of on the side of, well, if the criminals aren't going to follow the law anyway, shouldn't I be able to have something that the criminal would have. 
Like, what would you say to people like that that are saying, you know, well, they're going to print guns, they're going to steal guns, they're going to do all kinds of illegal things with guns. Well, why do I have to get be the one to not like have this law put against me? Like, what are we doing to the criminals? Like, are you are you for legislation that's like like more sentencing or more? Uh, modifiers on criminals that are using firearms or is it more? I, I am for legislation that limits access to all of those kinds of firearms we've talked about. And mm-hmm. so it limits access even for those who tend to use them um, uh, in, 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 to engage in criminal activity. Um, to have firearms with no serial weapon, um, I think uh, we should have the right to um, um, what you have to go through to get a driver's license in the state of California in terms of you know proving that you know the laws. Um, we should require that of anyone who wants to possess a gun. We should, through you know, gun shows and, and be able to impose that. You shouldn't be able to drive across a state line to Nevada, um, buy firearms, um, and circumvent laws in the state that you live in. And so I, I firmly believe that we should limit access and really get to the core of the issue around and fundamentally understanding gun violence. I think it's also a myopic view to look at it just in the, from this perspective of I'm an upright citizen and I should have the right to protect myself. We should talk about from a much more organic perspective the impact gun violence has had on our community broadly. And in, in the same way that you talked about how uh, the unhoused, the housing insecure are, are us, we are all this community, in the same way uh, we are the people, uh, both the criminals and the non-criminals, using guns. You don't know who is going to commit a crime with a gun. Uh, y- you could even be yourself mm-hmm. before the fact. So when you limit access to guns, necessarily you have to limit access to guns to everybody. Across the board. I, told, I, I, I somewhat understand that. I just view it more as like the majority, like the overwhelming majority of guns used in firearms are like stolen, printed, you know, they're illegal. So that's why like for me it's kind of hard wrapping my head around that because I'm like, well, if they're already doing it illegally, like in your mind, how is it, how are you combating the criminal by like making the bans against law-abiding citizens? How does it Well, well frankly, down? most of the bans are against the kind of guns you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Most of the bans are against that. I mean, yeah, there are limits in terms of who can have a concealed carry. Well, but I, most of the work we're talking about the uh, are on the ghost guns, are on the, the, um, the, the automatic and semi-automatic weapons. Most of... And this is outside of the county realm, mm-hmm. so this is really federal and state, to be perfectly honest. But most of the legislation that comes through is dealing with limiting access to the kinds of guns that are, tend to find their way into the black market. That's where the vast majority of the policy is. Okay, and then you're, you're with the board. Have you guys tried anything um, to you know, limit? Because, again, the majority of you know, gun, gun deaths in America are suicides. And, it's, again, it goes back to mental health. Um, how are you guys combating, you know, that issue? Because it is like one of the biggest issues in America. Um, it absolutely is. And then again, it's it's access and availability. Um, and so uh, our the L.A. County Department of Public Health has a gun violence prevention um, unit that works collaboratively with um, community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, and the Department of Mental Health to really come up with creative in- interventions um, in the context of public health. Um, and so that department's been in existence for several years, and it's had an, any number of initiatives to really look at it at a county level. And would you say that, you know, again, it goes back to what we've been 
coming back to over and over again is it's really about public awareness because I think if more people knew you could like actually report someone to get them declared mentally defective if they were having a psychotic break or if they were having mental problems or thinking about suicide I feel like again it's just one of those things like people don't know there are systems in place to help prevent some of these things that happen I agree so and it's, and, it, and it's you know we talk about the you know one kind of interesting silver lining I think as a result of the of COVID is the acknowledgement that we all suffered through that experience and an acknowledgement around mental health and a willingness to talk about it more publicly when you think about the number of athletes and on the CBS show this morning I'm going to say his name wrong a rapper from Seattle McLemore 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 talking about his own substance abuse relapse and mental health challenges i think it's coming to the forefront um and people are asking for help and the county is stepping up in ways that we never have historically in terms of expanding access to mental health services we have a brand new beautiful uh, mental health clinic right in the heart of koreatown we're doing um, remote access to mental health services uh, I did a contract with a nonprofit organization where it's remote mental health services. It is literally a van that is parked on various corners across, uh, throughout South LA where people can come there. There's a video monitor and either schedule an appointment for in-person services or have a um, telehealth experience with a mental, uh, LA County mental health practitioner. We are trying to take services outside of bricks and mortar into the community to support people in navigating their struggles. We've been circling around a, a wider and more nebulous topic uh, through all of this so far, uh, and that is that of uh, systemic racism and the ways in which the dominant ideology uh, have uh, harmed the lower classes. Uh, so uh, you've talked about uh, housing, uh, mental health services, uh, limiting access to guns, and closing down mass incarceration sites. Uh, what are we doing at the community level to uh, increase awareness and uh, increase uh, community ties and uh, class uh, consciousness? So, you know, I uh, am a black woman in America who happens to have the privilege of serving in a leadership capacity. Um, but that You have uh, Karen Bass and an entirely female uh, board of supervisors. We do. We do. And, you know, I'm also uh, a mother of a black son. And so what happens in the greater society impacts me like it impacts anybody else. And so when my team, you know, I was elected to the board in 2020, pivotal year for all of us, and you know, we're, we're, we too are experiencing and witnessing this national debate or non-debate, quite frankly, um, um, and, and decided that we wanted to create a space for the constituents of the second district and for County, the people, you know, there are 112,000 people who work in county government, who work in the sheriff's department, Department of Mental Health, Public Health, who provide these critical life sustaining services for county residents. And I wanted the department heads to also be a part of this conversation. The people who I have the privilege of appointing to the hundreds of commissions and advisory task forces to come together and have a safe space to talk about race. It's not enough to say, well, you know, Holly, I'm not a racist. If I had a nickel for every well-meaning colleague that said that to me, I'd be a wealthy woman. It's not enough. How do we move through our community as active 
anti-racist? How do we unlearn our own implicit bias that we carry? And we all have it, black, white, or whatever. We all carry bias. How do we unpack that? And how do we learn strategies to do better and be better? How do we learn how to be allies? What does allyship look like? And so we decided that we needed to investigate that and create space, safe spaces to have the conversation. To simply look at a governor of a southern state who inappropriately mischaracterizes a cur curriculum and says it, you know, it's, it's harmful. Well, how do we create safe spaces to have real conversations about race where we can learn about each other, ask questions, and be better informed? So we created, like made it up, this idea of the Racial Justice Learning Exchange, RJLE. We were also clear that this isn't like a lecture one and done. You come and you hear Supervisor Mitchell tell you how to not be racist. No, it, we have to unpack this. And so since February of last year, we have had monthly gatherings, some large, some small, where we've viewed films and had discussion, where we've had walking tours of community. We walked through my um, um, uh, neighborhood of Lamert Park, Crenshaw, to learn the, the rich history of the Japanese and African-American communities who've come together for decades and lived, you know, together, um, and how they honor and cherish each other's culture. Uh, we've had some lectures, we've had panels. We co-hosted with the Jewish Federation just this week a community Seder, it's Passover, to talk about the correlation between anti-Semitism and anti-blackness. We had a conversation about white fragility in the County Library in Manhattan Beach, where we talked about examples of when you've witnessed or practiced white fragility, and we talked about examples of when you've witnessed or practiced allyship. We did a training on how to be a, we did bystander training uh, around the Asian hate and the increase in Asian hate we've experienced in LA County. And how to, and, and, and we have all witnessed some, we have all witnessed some form of hate directed either at a member of our own group or another. And what do you do in that minute? We all kind of get uncomfortable. Do we speak up? Do we provide cover? And so we actually had a training for people to understand the ways in which you can engage and be present and address a act of hate in real time. So I'm very excited about the work we've done with the Racial Justice Learning Exchange. Again, it's monthly. You can find it on the website. Um, we move it intentionally around the second district. So we are trying to hit every community uh, and address issues that um, far too often go unspoken and unaddressed. I, I, have, a, I have a specifically worded question because this is fascinating to me and I'm okay. sure you have an opinion. All right. Why do you think that the, uh, it, it, why do you think that critical race theory, quote unquote, is, has been viewed as a, as a threat, that it resonates as a threat with uh, suburban white parents uh, who listen to Fox News and are concerned about parental rights in schools? Because it has been completely mischaracterized. Right. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw uh, created the concept based on a college-level curriculum, and what it is is American history. 
And this notion and this fear-based notion that, um, which is based in white fragility, quite frankly, that their children shouldn't be saddled with the responsibility of the actions of their foremothers and forefathers. Well, that's what history is. History is understanding how we got to where we are, how we got to these differences in our society. It's important for people to understand American history in its complexity and in its entirety. So to sanitize history, which some cultures have done in the past, have really led to bad things. Um, I think Hitler's goal was to sanitize history um, and was to eliminate a group of people to create this pure race. We all know now, looking in the rearview mirror, that he was, you know, mad. <laughs> and I believe that when we look back at this period in history, we'll have the same similar kind of visceral response. It is a complete mischaracterization of what the curriculum is, and it's fear-mongering. I would definitely agree because um, we've had conversations about this numerous times, and I think it's that there's always, <clears throat> excuse me, there's an extreme version of people that take it too far where they're like, you are this, you are that, you're the reason this, and I think that, of course, Fox News is going to jump on and be like, well, look what they're saying to these kids. And then they use that extreme example for everything when it's like, that's not like what critical race theory is. I think that, you know, the country needs to come together as a whole and establish like actual curriculum, like how it's supposed to be taught rather than just like, hey, everybody can do whatever they want and figure it out. Because, you know, like there's an, other states that are trying to take uh, slavery out of the history books and stuff like that. And it's like you can't can't do that like you gotta you have to understand the past so that way the future does not repeat itself when you uh you know at, at our seder the other night you know one of the the core tenets of the of passover is to really to celebrate um the freedom of a formerly enslaved group of people kind of the focus of, of passover um and it's also to teach history so we don't repeat those same mistakes when we listen to our armenian brothers and sisters who 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 who's own genocide is is denied by far too many whole countries are, are denying and this is recent history yeah. so this denial of um, race culture religious based bad behavior is rooted in ignorance why do you think there's been a recent resurgence of interest in uh, targeting uh, minority populations uh, like the LGBTQ community uh, and the, the the black community in parts uh, in recent uh, years. I think um, you know when this country elected Barack Obama, far too many people assumed that act meant that we were in a post-racial society, and we are not, as exhibited in my humble opinion by the election of Donald Trump to be president. And the fact that his rhetoric, his philosophy helped um, exacerbate the problem. And it, it was always there, but it, it, it gave it air. It, it gave freed them the freedom. id. It, it gave them freedom. Along with, you know, economics. You know, they're afraid. They're afraid that they're losing ground. They're afraid, you know, when, when, when he promised folks that, you know, we're going to go back to uh, you, mining, you'll have your jobs back. We all knew that was a lie. That is a technology that we will never return to. And I think people are desperate 
to hold on to the their dream of of fairness and equality for them. And if they have to step on somebody else to get it, then they're okay with that. And so to be reminded of um, the, the white supremacist ideology upon which this country was founded upon, people don't want to be reminded about that history. They want to put the, what was so long ago. No, it wasn't. Black people of today are two, three generations away from enslavement. And let's talk about what the lack of my foremother's ability to pass on multi-generational wealth has done in terms of limiting my capacity in terms of home ownership. Redlining in this very liberal city of, of Los Angeles is very recent history. My mother as a USC graduate in the 50s couldn't rent an apartment in the jungle. I'm you know, a product of Lamert Park because that was about as far west as she could go to rent an apartment with a degree from the University of Southern California. Uh, when we look at what happened to our community with the expansion of the Santa Monica Freeway that cut right through um, the, the black wealth in terms of land ownership in L.A., when Sugar Hill was cut in half. When we look into the Santa Monica Freeway and the black homeowners in Santa Monica who lost their homes. And so they want to say it's history, it's, it's, it's slavery was so long ago. Well, let's look at the role slavery and, and, and Reconstruction and then Jim Crow and the mass, you know, prison industrial complex um, and the criminalization of poverty and the war on drugs and who paid the price, how all that over time has continued to keep the foot on the neck of the black community. And I think the fact that we are resilient people and continue to survive um, breeds a different kind of maybe fear and resentment. And what was your response to, you know, the, the racism from the, uh, it was the Los Angeles City, City Council? Council. Yes. Like, what was your response to that? Because, again, I, I think a lot of people, too, they were just like, they're not even white. Like, they're, they're being racist. To, you know, a lot of people were surprised about that as well. So what would you say your response to that was and, like, how you think, you know, government should you know, enact, you know. LA still seems to be trapped by a pluralistic understanding of politics, racial mm -hmm. politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, my response to that is, and it came up through one of our discussions at RGLE, I'm proud to say, is that, you know, you don't have to be white to, to subscribe to a white supremacist theory or ideology. And so what we saw was a group of people, all of whom I knew, uh, two of whom I served with in the California legislature, um, who were talking about, quite frankly, individual power. I think that we coded that, those conversations with, by, by race, mm -hmm. but in reality, they were fighting for individual power. Um, they, they attempted to frame it as, we're fighting for the Latino community, and yet they then said very horrible comments about segments of the Latino community. So it was really about individual power and how that layers on top of racial politics in LA. You know, the, the black and brown unity I have always experienced in my community in South LA, you know, uh, we weren't surprised by those comments, but nor will we be defined by those comments. I have said from the very beginning, that was a group of four people in a room who were fighting for their own survival. It reminded me of the New York political scene in the 18, 
90s. It was the Irish versus the Italians, and the politicians were using their constituents' uh, I don't know, uh, herds to fight the other constituents. And right. that doesn't seem to be very conducive to a polite society. I, I agree. And, and again, in that, when you really listen, if you listen to the full tape, not just the highlights, it was about how do I maintain power? How do I get reelected? How do I maintain power? And so that's a different kind of conversation. You were on a podcast called She Shares a while back. Do you remember that? Mm. I can't remember the, uh, the host's name, but... Uh, uh, she said that uh, she was a conservative Republican, uh, but that you had convinced her of of many of the things that uh, she thought she'd never accept. Uh, you know, uh, progressive politics and uh, reforms and change. Uh, what do you think you you have said to people that have convinced them? Like, well, what first is of all, what is it, it about Holly, your demeanor? Get it, get it Holly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think. My theory that, you know, when I first ran for office, my son, who is now 22, was eight. And I talked to him about, you know, my decision and why. And so we were doing, he, he's very, you know, curious young kid and was asking questions. And so he said, you know, it's going to be hard. I said, yep. And somehow he understood that, that there were no kind of black and white, right or wrong answers when it comes to public policy. And I'm like, it's right. Most of it is in the gray matter. It's in the, it's in the middle. Um, and so I think by acknowledging that and, and, and working hard to dig deep to really come up with solutions that are fair and equitable and speaking my truth, um, you know, holding people accountable. No, I had a debate with the former sheriff who, you know, Villanueva. had a very, yes, yeah. who had a very kind of, from my perspective, sophomoric view of the unhoused and that they should just be, you know, and that they're all from someplace else. I'm like, no, they're not. I walk and talk to people in my community and they're from the neighborhood, quite frankly, where they've pitched the tent <laughs> because that's where I would go in a community that I would know. So this notion that they're all from other states and they're coming here because of the largesse of our social service delivery system is simply not true. So I've worked hard to dispel myths you don't have the luxury of walking around based on an, uh, with an assumption based on nothing. I told him in that conversation, sh uh, give me your citations. Show me the studies that conclude that the vast majority of the, of the unsheltered unhoused in L.A. City are from Kansas or Utah. And they've come in here because of our social service delivery system. Show me. Well, you can't. Well, I can show you studies that contradict that. So... I not only bring my own ordinary life experience, I look at data. Um, a policy should be driven based on fact. We talk about men's central jail. Who is there and why? You know, I think people tend to view public policy from their own very narrow lens. Oh, you're not doing enough about homelessness because the mentally ill lady who strips down and is naked on my corner is still there. Well, let me share some data with you about the number of units we have built, the kind of mental health services we are standing up. Um, oh, you're, you, you just say defund the police. You're anti-police. No, I'm not. We've dumped on the backs and the laps of police more than they signed up for. I want to right-size law enforcement. I want to have an alternative for people to call when they see someone having a mental health episode that you can call another number to have a mental health expert show up, not law enforcement who's not trained to manage that scenario. 
Um, so I think when people hear the facts that I may have be privy to because I am a policymaker, I do go deep, I understand, I monitor the budgets, I understand how we're spending the money and on what, um, I think maybe I have the opportunity to inform and educate. Change minds, that's optimistic, but I at least want people to leave a conversation or a podcast experience with me having a little more information than they had about what's really happening in their community, the role their government is playing on their behalf every day, even when they don't know it. And so I had one more quick question before we, we finish everything up. How is, how is your experience working with the new sheriff? And, you know, does, is he on board with, like, initiatives of, like, hey, like, we're giving you all this money for mental health. Why don't we just take that away and actually put it towards mental health? Is he on board with you there, or is, are you seeing the same pushback from uh, the former sheriff? Um, you know, I, I endorsed uh, Sheriff Luna after a very lengthy conversation with not only myself, members of my team who, who lived in Long Beach and lived under him as um, police chief for Long Beach and had questions in terms of his um, practice uh, and policies in that capacity. And so we've had really great conversations. And you know, for me, um, budgets are value statements. How policymakers and how government prioritizes how we spend your money is a reflection of, of, of what we prioritize, I think, as a civil society. And you know, my conversations with the previous um, sheriff, he wasn't a good manager of his department of the budget. And so, you know, constant cost overruns, not managing overtime, those are separate from our politics. I, we, we need a good manager. He is a department head. Yes, he's a top cop, but he's also a department head who has to manage the budget, hire people, manage overtime, um, all those kinds of decisions, making sure that there's appropriate coverage countywide not going outside of your jurisdiction to Venice Beach when you have areas in the county that you are responsible for who haven't seen a sheriff when they need one. So my conversations with um, Sheriff Luna have um, quelled my concern about someone who has the capacity to manage the department well and right. You know, I really invite people to be engaged civically. It's not enough to just you know, vote, although in this special election here in the city of L.A., this, th that was this week, we saw, you know, single-digit percentage turnout. Yeah. But to really engage. We have websites. Um, uh, we are, you know, broadcast live, the board meeting. When you recognize there, there, are, there are five members of the L.A. County Board of Supervisors, five women. Uh, each of us have two million residents in our district. I'm making decisions, you know, every Tuesday that probably have more direct impact on the life of an L.A. County resident, quite frankly, than the president. And so people should tune in. I, I am coming from the state legislature to local government. I was, you know, kind of taken aback about who shows up weekly to participate. And there are gadflies who come, take up time from members of the public who, who have viable information to share, who are there for, I'm not sure why they're there. You know, we've got one guy who dresses up like Batman and he makes goat sounds. We have one who waves the Confederate flag and, you know, calls us names and, uh, and you know, and, it, and it's, like, it's like a performance. And I'm fine. Everybody has their First Amendment right. 
But like, I have constituents who need to understand the importance of the decisions I'm making. We have budget decisions. LA County has a $44 billion budget. And I want people to show up and understand what's at risk for them and their children and their community. And not let folks who are there for the theatrics to take up all the time and space. There was a young woman who came to testify. I asked my staff, could you get her phone number? They were like, why? And they told her I was going to call her. She was like, why? I said, I just wanted to call you and thank you. You were eloquent. Um, you represented a perspective that needed to be in the room that day. And I'm sorry that you were surrounded by people who don't appear to take this seriously. Would you say that the reason that is is simply because, one, awareness, like we've been talking about this this whole podcast, and then on top of that, um, you know, people have, like, like, we talked about this with Just LA, that it's during the work week, and people don't really have time, and then, you know, there are all kinds of, you know, different conflicting things. And um, it's a complicated process. They need guidance from uh, community organizations like Just LA. Exactly. So my, my one question is, I'm just throwing this out there. Why, why are we getting to, you know, especially with voting, where people can, you know, there's more voting on the weekends. It's more like a holiday. Like, why haven't we seen that, for, like, from government? Because... I know for a fact, like I have so many friends that are like, oh, I want to vote, but I get off work late and oh, I forgot her. Like, why, where, is, where can we, you know, go to like get that initiative pushed Where can forward? we make some systemic improvements? Well, to, yeah. well uh, I have increase. to say here in California, uh, we did that. Another kind of strange silver lining with COVID where everybody got the ballot in the mail. Mm -hmm. So you could vote at your leisure, at your kitchen table uh, and take days and weeks to get it done. We have, you know, it's a voting season now. It's not just election day. We've got, you know, early voting in L.A. County. We have those bright colored blue and yellow boxes that look like mailboxes where you can drop your ballot weeks before the actual, you know, election day is like the cutoff. That should be viewed as the end of the election season. But we now in L.A. County have weeks leading up to the final cutoff day. So people need to understand that. People just need to make the decision that it's something that they're committed to do. Um, we now have, you know, online access to information where you can read about candidates. Because when I ran for this office in 2020, the I was in the March 2020 primary. It was in the middle of COVID. There were more online Zoom debates than you could ever imagine. Um, if if somebody put forth the minimal effort, they could even after the fact on YouTube see a debate between all the candidates and hear our perspectives and understand who we are. So I think people have to put forth the effort. Um, you know, put together groups. There was a group of young black women in Sacramento when I was there who started um, a voter's guide. Just young women in the community who kind of divided up the work and shared their opinions about, you know, what they learned. And people would lob on to the voting guide. And so I think we have to, we have to, to, to not give our power away. You can tell I get a little PO'd about this notion that, oh, it's so hard, I have to work. But you're giving your power away. You are allowing other people to make decisions for you on who gets elected. And those people make decisions that impact every aspect of your life, from gun ownership to resource allocation for housing, to the list is... It's immense. It's immense. And so 
judges, I get it, it's hard, but judges make decisions on whether someone goes to jail for life, walks, death penalty. <laughs> Why would we not want to be engaged to figure out who those people are we are empowering to put on the black robe and make life and death decisions, perhaps about us or our family members? So that's the beauty of a democracy and uh, uh, why I feel about it so passionately, separate from the fact that I'm an elected official, but it's also what attracted me to consider to be becoming one when I looked at elected bodies and saw so few people not only looked like me, came from my background, my neighborhood, my perspective. I am a single parent. Um, uh, as I said, I'm a middle-aged black woman in America. Um, with dreadlocks and tattoos. <laughs> and so I bring my ordinary life experience to the policymaking process, and we want a diverse group of people to bring a diverse set of views and perspectives to establish the laws and regulations that govern us. And it really should be. People really need to get off social media. Like, if you can take hours out of your day to, you know, go on social media and rant and complain about things, it's like you should really take the time to, you know, vote and, you know, and research. And not just vote, but go to events like the Racial Justice Learning Initiative and get in touch with the community and involved with local government. I bet exactly. more people can name all the Kardashian girls as opposed to name the five women who serve on the L.A. County Board of Supervisors, arguably the most powerful elected body in the country. Just saying. I, I'm, I'm so glad we had you here. I love to hear your passion, and you had a lot of good points. I hope the listeners uh, take away from this uh, some passion of their own that they can bring to their local government. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.